Well, good morning. This morning we'll be talking about Christmas. Christmas is about history. It's about who God is. It's about the good news of salvation. And Christmas is about fishing. Yeah, I thought that would get your attention. Our text this morning is from the book of Galatians. Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Before we start, I want to do a little review. Last week, our missionary, Skip Lake, was with us. What did he talk about? Contentment. Yes. The week before, Dave Eubanks uh, spoke about what? Gratitude. We've gotten two weeks and we still remember. The week before that, Pastor Preston spoke about what? First Peter. There we go. First Peter 3. Um, Pastor Preston said it was a do-do-don't-do message, remember? He was hoping you remembered more than that. What I heard was, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. God is with us. He is for us. This will not be a do-do-don't-do message. It'll be much worse. <laughs> it, it will be a paternoster message. What do I mean? Well, my first option could be this. It's a really great message about who God is, about prayer, faithfulness, forgiveness, devotion, but of course it's in Latin. You might recognize a few words to know this is the Lord's Prayer. Paternoster is our Father, not just an elevator. Um, my second option could be an elevator. But Pastor John already told you what the problem with that is. This is a Paternoster lift, an old elevator mostly found in Eastern Europe. Um, it has no doors. It doesn't stop. You have to time your getting off and getting on carefully. Maybe you even want to say a prayer before you board. And you'll see the signs, no hand carts. I wouldn't want to try and do that. But this message would go round and round and round and never end. A third option could be this. Paternoster Lakes. Uh, three lakes and a poem, maybe? 
Justin, what are you doing? He said Christmas was about fishing, so I figured I could help. I'm not sure that boat will be safe in the water. Then I suggest you don't go too deep. Oh. Do you know what Paternoster has to do with fishing? No, but I'm sure you're going to tell us anyways. <laughs> Thanks, Justin, for your help. So without getting too deep, um, a Paternoster line or Paternoster rig is a fishing rig with multiple hooks attached to it. It allows anglers to catch many different fish species, especially when bottom fishing from an anchored boat, not fishing out of the bottom of your boat. It allows the use of different hooks and baits suspended at different depths to catch different fish at the same time. Often when I teach, I am prone to allowing the class to take rabbit trails. Of course, I would never be the one leading down those trails. Rather than calling them rabbit trails today, let's think of these as lines of thought. Some of the lines are the ones I planned and intended, and some of them are the ones that come to you. Now, the kids' sheet has three intended lines and uh, the main points of the message. The rest of you, if you have a piece of paper or something to write notes on, get it ready. Um, because something I say or something you think of is going to be really important to think about later. And I don't want you to get distracted and go off on it now. Okay, back to Galatians 4.4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Christmas is the heart of history. What is history? The story of the past. It's everything behind us. We divide it before and after Christ. How did that come about? What does A.D. stand for? After death? Well, not quite. Anno Domini. Had to go back to the Latin. Um, Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. So... The year of our Lord. What's B.C. stand for? It must be something in Latin too, right? Before Christ. You just knew that one. I actually looked that up because I thought, really? It can't be that simple. Yeah, it's that simple. Um, so when did Anno Domini become a thing? So before Christ, there were a lot of years. And how were they counting them? How were they counting years? How were they counting months? Well, for a long time, they, different people used lunar calendars, solar calendars, lunar solar calendars. They'd start over every time there was a new king. Um, the Romans had the Roman calendar uh, from the start of Rome, but 
they also, every time a new ruler, um, they'd start over. And some things to think about, um, we take for granted that every year we get a new calendar and it's already, we can predict what the calendar is going to say. Um, a couple hundred years before Christ, really 45 years before Christ, they were still on a, uh, okay, it's a new year, how are we going to write the calendar this year? Um, I don't know how many of you are scientists or mathematicians or whatever as to, to even contemplate figuring out how many days there are in a year. How many days are there in a year? 365. But that's not right. You know that. Because what's every four years we have what? Leap year. Why? Because it's more than 365 in a year. You know how long ago they knew that? I see a couple of head shaking. Uh, no, I don't know that either. <laughs> At least a couple hundred years before Christ, they knew that the year was something like 365 and a quarter. And everybody's heard of the Julian calendar, right? You've heard of the Julian calendar? And... Who's that named after? Julius. Julian, Julius. Julius Caesar, 45 BC, said, look, we got to figure this out. We got to get this calendar. We got to do this leap thing correctly, not just add these days whenever we feel like it. And so they added that. And so 365 and a quarter, they had that figured out. Um, in about 525, a guy named Dionysius, called the Humble, in what is now Romania, said, for a couple reasons. One, I told you that calendars, they kept starting over. They kept starting over. They kept starting over. Um, they were in what was called the Diocletian era. The calendar was based on Roman Emperor Diocletian. He was not a good dude. The Christian church was not uh, really inclined to keep referring to this guy and remembering this guy. It had been, you know, a couple hundred, few hundred years. And so he was looking to get rid of that name. He was also looking at the fact that there were people who were saying that the end of the world has come because they counted the world had been about 6,000 years and, you know, looking at a week is six, six days and the seventh day God rested and they were sure. And there were people who were thinking the time is, is over and they're stopping doing things just like we read in the first century. Um, people who are waiting for Christ's return and not going about the business of the Lord. And uh, so he said, let's change this calendar to the year of our Lord. So since about 525, we have had the calendar A.D. and B.C. And you've heard of the Gregorian calendar, right? Everybody's heard of the Gregorian calendar? You use it every day. 
but you don't know it. Or you do know it and you don't think about it. So I said that, we said that the, the, the year is approximately 365 and a quarter. And, and Pope Gregory in 1582 said, you know, we're still getting messed up. Because that 365 and a quarter is not right. It's really 365.2425. You know, that messes us up a day every 128 years. It's, you know, it's unlivable. Um, so, uh, we've had now 450 years of the Gregorian calendar. What does any of that matter to our message today? Or to our lives if we don't even know what a quarter of a day is in a year or in our lifetime or the birth of the Son of God altered history for the whole world for us to memorialize and remember his coming to earth to save sinners from their sins it's important and every time we look at a calendar, we can remember he came. Jesus was really born in a real place at a real time. He's not a myth. He's not a bedtime story or a morality play. There was a time before he came when people looked forward to his coming after Jesus had died and was buried and rose from the grave, he appeared to two disciples who were walking on the road to Emmaus. They didn't recognize him. Now, there's a lot of this about this story we don't know. We don't know who these disciples were, and there were a lot of disciples. You know, we think of the disciples, we know the twelve and we know that there were others. We don't know all the time when it's the 12, when there are others. Um, we presume these are not the 12. How far is it from Jerusalem to Emmaus? Six, seven miles. Where along that six, seven miles did Jesus appear to them? We don't know. But... In Luke 24, verse 27, it tells us, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Can you imagine what those verses were? What did Jesus tell them? What scripture did he go through? I've read that there are 300 scriptures in the Old Testament that are predictive or descriptive of Jesus and his coming um, and his life and his sacrifice. So we're going to look at those. Okay, not all 300. We'll start with some verses that are predictions about him. Isaiah 7.14 now, just for time reference, when was Isaiah? About 733. Now, how do we know that for this passage in Isaiah 7? It doesn't say that. 
Um, but in Isaiah 6, just the ch chapter before, it says in verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died. And we can identify that year. So it's about 733. And Isaiah says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, for deeper study, for some of you, I'm suggesting that you look at the meaning of the Hebrew word Alma, A-L-M-A-H, translated virgin, and the person to whom the prophet refers. Was Isaiah telling King Ahaz and the people of Judah that God was with them and against the Arameans and the northern tribes of Israel as, as well as predicting the coming Messiah? I like what theologian and commentator Craig Blasing describes this. A divinely directed historical complexification of prophetic patterns. A double blessing, a double prediction. We read in Matthew 1, 22 and 23, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. What was all this that took place? Well, an angel came to Mary and told her that she would have a son. She said that was impossible because she was a virgin. The angel said the Holy Spirit would cause this pregnancy. She became pregnant and her fiancé Joseph had to decide, what am I going to do about this? An angel came to Joseph in a dream and explained Mary's pregnancy to him. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins, the angel told Joseph. The Messiah would be of the lineage of David. Jesus would be his descendant in his family tree. When David was near the end of his life, now we've gone back a couple hundred years from Isaiah, Nathan the prophet was sent by God to tell him about the future. His son Solomon would be blessed. In 2 Samuel 7, 16 and 17 we read, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. We read in Isaiah 11, 1, in the middle of this long messianic section. Remember, this is about 240 years after David. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Who is Jesse? David's father. In Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, this is about 600 B.C., so 130 years after Isaiah. We read, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely 
and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Is Jesus in the lineage of David? According to the genealogies in Matthew 1 and Luke 1, he is. Maybe for further study, you. why are these records different? According to the blind beggar in Mark 10.47, he is in the line of David, as the beggar says, Jesus, son of David. Micah 5.2 tells us where Jesus would be born. He's about the same time as Isaiah. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Remember, Herod's advisors could tell the wise men where to find the baby, where they were to look for the new king. And we can't leave out Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. If we look at Romans 16.20, we read, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Hebrews 2.14 that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. We could also look at Revelations 20, verses 1 to 3 and verse 10. I didn't say anything about that time frame on the earth, the creation. How was that figured? Well, you can study a lot more about that. This I took from the Byzantine calendar, so we're talking 500-ish, 800-ish to 1,000 A.D. when they calculated. If we looked at the Hebrew calendar, it's like 3,800 B.C. Calculations different. Um, I don't want to get hung up on the date, but God planned from the beginning, and God controls to the end. Now we will, let's look at some verses where Jesus is identified as fulfilling Scripture by reliving parts of Israel's story as its ultimate representative. Hosea 11.1, 1, again about the same time as Isaiah and Micah. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Obviously, God brought the Israelites out of Egypt from slavery. But in Matthew 2, after the wise men left, 
And after Herod had decided to kill the baby boys in Bethlehem because the wise men didn't come back and report, so that he could eliminate any potential competition, remember an angel came to Joseph and told him to flee to Egypt. You'll remember they stayed there until Herod died and an angel again came to Joseph and said, return, it is safe. You might remember he didn't say go back to Bethlehem. He said go to Nazareth to fulfill another prophecy about where Christ would come from. In Numbers 22, we're introduced to Balak, the king of Moab. His people are in great dread, verse 3, of a large group of people they have heard about and are now approaching. Balak sends messengers to a prophet named Balaam, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite me. He asked Balaam to curse them because they're too mighty for him to handle. You will remember God had to get Balaam's attention. How did he do that? Docking donkey. And instead of cursing the people of Israel, what did Balaam do? He blessed them. Balak and Balaam tried this a couple of times. Each time, instead of cursing Israel, Balaam blessed them. Finally, Balak tells them to stop. Look, don't, don't even curse them. Don't bless them at all. Just stop. But Balaam says, all that the Lord says, that I must do. I know you're starting to wonder what this has to do with the Christmas story. In chapter 24, verses 16 and 17, this is about 1400 B.C., the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. What sign did the wise men see and follow? Jesus identifies himself in Revelation 22:16 as the bright morning star. But was Balaam's oracle of a king who would destroy Israel's enemies really about the Messiah? Or maybe about King David or someone else? If we read Amos 9, written after King David, Amos is still looking forward, not backwards, to the Lord repairing and rebuilding Israel. James quotes from this passage in Acts 15, Jesus is the Messiah, the one who came to save his people from their sin, the Holy Righteous one. He is the heart of history. Why does history matter? 
A lot of people don't know God. Many people don't believe in God. Some people think God exists, but he isn't interested in them. Some people think the Bible is full of myths, that it doesn't matter to their lives. It's important that we understand that God not, is not only real, he's not only involved in history, but that he's in control of history. Christmas is about who God is. To the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. 1 Timothy 1, 17. God is the creator of everything. Christmas reveals God is in control of everything. John the Baptist, born to a couple who were unable to have children. The star that led the wise men. The Roman ruler whose order brought Joseph and Mary to the required location of Bethlehem. The angels who announced his birth. The dream that warned the wise men not to return to Herod. The angel who warned Joseph to flee to Egypt and later to return safely, but to Nazareth. God can do all things, including a Virgin Mary having a son. Christmas reveals to us the Trinity, God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The angel Gabriel was sent from God to Mary. You will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and shall be called the Son of the Most High. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. We see these statements from Luke 1, 26 to 35. Christmas reveals to us God's love for us in the incarnation of Jesus, the Son. What is incarnation? What does incarnation mean? God becoming man in, in the flesh, into flesh, taking on flesh. God becoming a baby boy to grow up in a family, to prepare his disciples, to then die on the cross, to pay the penalty of our sins to rise again, and to be our Savior and our Lord. This brings us to the reason for the joy of Christmas. Good tidings of great joy. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Christmas is about the good news of salvation. It's about redemption and adoption. The baby in the manger came to rescue slaves by paying the price of sin. Israel celebrated the Passover 
as a reminder of the price of redemption from slavery to Egypt with the sacrifice of a lamb. The baby in the, in the manger would pay the price for our redemption from sin with the sacrifice of himself on the cross. Unlike the lamb's covering of sin, Jesus' sacrifice would forgive sin. Let's back up. A little review from our Gather and Grow. For those of you who haven't been, let the others answer. You'll get it wrong otherwise. What is sin? Debbie, what is <laughs> sin is thinking, saying, behaving. I said doing. Um, doing things that go against God's commands. Thinking, saying, and behaving in ways that go against God's commands. Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the garden. When they ate the fruit from the tree, God had told them not to. Their disobedience caused a break in their relationship with God. How many people since Adam and Eve have disobeyed God? We got that answer right. <laughs> Paul answers that question in Romans 3, quoting David from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, nearly a thousand years earlier. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. He is the Lord of righteousness. We read that a bit ago in Jeremiah. We have all sinned and fall short of God's standard of perfect, holy righteousness. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 The penalty for or the price of sin is set. It's death. But God has provided a gift of eternal life through grace. We read in Romans 6.23, you can say it, of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus our Lord. God's love is so great for us that he gave his only son as a sacrifice for the sins of all humanity. Jesus Christ died for our sins. He paid the price for our death. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8 I know it's Christmas, and in that first Christmas, Mary would be treasuring up all these things, pondering them in her heart, as was read earlier from Luke 2.19, wondering what it all meant and how life would be raising the Savior of the world. 
But we have the rest of the story. Christ died for us. We receive salvation and eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. Believing, trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. There is only one way. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10, 9-13 Salvation through Jesus Christ brings us into a relationship of peace with God. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John 1, 12, 13. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 1. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, 38 to 39. So what are we going to do about it? If there is anyone in this room who doesn't understand what these verses just said, or who has never put their faith and trust in the sacrifice of Jesus, I would ask that you would come forward. Come to the front. Somebody will, will come up and talk with you. Explain. If you don't understand it, please don't leave. Please come and talk to someone. When Jesus called Peter, James, and John to follow him and be his disciples, he told them he would make them fishers of men. Before he ascended into heaven after the resurrection, Jesus told his disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. If you look at this passage, you will read that he took the twelve and he told them, the eleven, and he told them this. You'll also read 
there were some who had doubt. To those of you who have trusted Christ, what has God called you to do? We aren't told that he told all of the disciples that he would make them fishers of men. But maybe you have trusted Christ and maybe he did tell you to be a fisher of men and you haven't picked up your pole or your nets or your paper boat. If the Holy Spirit is talking to you, I'd ask you to come forward. Someone will talk with you too. Christmas is the greatest news about the King of all kings who came to identify with us by taking on humanity, to pay the price to buy our freedom from sin, to bring us back to a relationship with him. Let's share the news. Let's do what he's called us to do.